HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome. This is Katie Kiefer on the Heritage Radio Network, and this program is giving it to you straight, no chaser. My guest in studio today is Michael Connard. Michael is the assistant director of the Urban Design Lab, an adjunct associate professor at the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation at Columbia University. He's a registered architect. There's really hardly anything the guy doesn't do, apparently. I mean, that is an unbelievable... I can't even read all this stuff. It's so much. But anyway, the real point is that Michael has directed an applied and academic urban design research for over 25 years on five continents in both the public and private sectors. And that is the crux of the matter here. (laughs) Urban design, urban planning, and where we go forth. So you guys, um, I got interested in your product. You have just completed a major study on um, sort of food systems in the United States. And uh, why don't you give us a little thumbnail sketch of what the study is and, and how you got to you know, put this together. Certainly, certainly. And Katie, it's great to be able to be here and, and talk to you today. Thank you. Uh, the The Urban Design Lab is at the Earth Institute, and uh, we were asked about uh, five years ago uh, by a organization at MIT run by an, an ex-Olympic figure skater, Tenley Albright, who had been a surgeon at, uh, at Harvard, um, to do a study which looked at uh, a chronic condition, childhood obesity, and use a design approach. Um, The lab had been in formation, I think, at that point for about a year or two, beginning to apply some of the basic sciences of the Earth Institute at a community level. Uh, And so being architects, urban designers, Uh, a kind of unusual group within the Earth Institute. Uh, Tanley's Albright's request for applying a design-based methodology to a chronic disease of childhood obesity was a natural for us, and so we were thrilled to partner with her on that. Uh, That was funded by a major uh, health organization, United Health Foundation, and they really want, gave us uh, free 
latitude to look at whatever we needed to to understand how to curb childhood obesity. And within, I would say, three months of beginning that study and mobilizing with a very large team, uh, traveling around the country, reading, well, at this point, it's probably 12 or 1,400 national scholarly articles, uh, understood that if we were going to go after childhood obesity to actually make a difference, we needed to go after the intake side of the energy equation. We needed to go after the food system, and we needed to go after it comprehensively. Um, and to do that, we began to understand the changes that would need to be made to, uh, to get healthy, um, affordable, accessible food um, to people who didn't have it. And you know, we knew that we needed to be uh, changing the kind of formula for access and affordability. And it wasn't going to be a, a piecemeal. It, you know, there are a lot of good things that were happening nationally. A lot of people that were doing good parts of the systemic change that was going to be made need to be made. Uh, but it needed to be coordinated. It needed to be supported. It needed to be organized. And there needed to be a kind of vision for how all these good efforts would, would, would come together. Uh, and the, the way that we began to organize that was building on a lot of the good work that was happening local regional food systems, uh, understanding that that there was a slam dunk, really, for a lot of the efforts. Uh, it addressed health, it addressed food, it addressed water, it addressed climate, um, and it needed to be organized and systematized at a national level So, it, with support for the federal government. So we... The, the strategy was what we had called a national integrated regional food system, a system of uh, loosely organized and associated regional systems, uh, and began then working uh, as architects and urban designers to understand how to put that together. What was the system that needed to be uh, changed? What was the changes that needed to be made to make that um, a comparable, uh, uh, competitive system to the one to the global the national global system that we presently have um, so how did you so what was the answer well there are many answers uh, I think the the way, place that we've been working most um, effectively right now is around notions of infrastructure and trying to develop more regionalized uh, infrastructural systems to really create a kind of level playing field. Uh, we know that, you know, what we call, speak about all the time is the kind of unintended consequences of, of a nationalized system, a highway system, a you know, rail system. You know, New York, we knew many people would say that our food comes from 1,500 miles away. That's a study that came out of the Leopold Center about four or five years ago. Well, in 1925, New York City's food system came from 1,500 miles away, but not on a sort of a robust highway system, but a very a robust rail system. So uh, you know, what we're looking for is not to, to change or to minimize the, the needs of a nationalized system, but, but to provide other infrastructural systems that, that provide better consolidation, better processing, better distribution, more effective, you know, efficient ways of putting those together, uh, both visioning the system and supporting people that are, that are trying to do it. So how does that tie into, I mean, 
you're saying that you want to continue to support the nationalized, um, and I don't mean that in the sort of you know utopian sense, but the the national food system as it exists. But what I think a lot of your um, study pointed out, and certainly a lot of the people who've come through these studios are talking about, mm. is re-regionalizing the food system. Yeah. So how does that work together? You have the national, the national piece that is bringing fruits and vegetables from California to New York, or, or you're yeah, no, I mean that's not su- what I supporting the, the, more the, the of national, the, the nationalized infrastructural system. I would mm-hmm. see, you know, we've been talking about a regionalized system for a while i mean we've been talking about it with you know national brands and national suppliers and they I, you know they get it they understand mm-hmm. they're they're you know and many of them are rethinking their business models they're trying to understand how to be more you know certain in the unpredictability of climate change and fuel prices well, fuel prices i mean right there right. Uh, for somebody like cisco or us foods or one of oh, those yeah. big broad Walmart distributors or any of those guys. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. i mean the food the fuel costs for transporting food that far is it's got to be it's a big de- determining factor yeah. um, one of the things that um, i'm going to keep going on this is that is it uh, one of the quotes that i pulled out of your thing is the model that you've created in your study includes consideration of sourcing, transportation, processing, and retail infrastructure in consolidate in consultation, excuse me, with stakeholders interested in emerging new business opportunities. And one of the things that bugs me the most about what's been going on is where is the venture capital? Where is the money? Because the federal government, as I understand it, has very little money to spare, and certainly in consideration of the farm bill that's coming up. I haven't heard anybody, <clears throat> excuse me, who's familiar with what's in the farm bill saying that there's going to be allocations for more regionalized infrastructure development. Yeah. So where where is that money and how, how would you attract it? Yeah, I mean, it, it is there and there are people that are thinking about it and it's just beginning to be uh, directed and invested. Uh, I mean, we're working uh, with people that are think, talking about regionalized food hubs, mm-hmm. uh, food hubs attached some to health, healthcare facilities, uh, food hubs are—it's a broad term. It, it, it can mean many things, but what that might mean in a particular valley in upstate New York, or what that might mean in you know consolidating or making regional uh, storage for apples um, a viable alternative for for New York apples. I mm-hmm. mean, we know that many apples in New York City come from Washington State instead of Washington County. But even I, you know, and we've done a lot of work on apples and beef and trying to understand that value chain. But you know, even recently, I heard uh, that New York State apples actually get back on rail X, are sent back to Washington State to be cut to come back to New York City to be sold. So that logic of that infrastructure creates this, you know, sort of odd bedfellow. This odd How did that happen? I mean. Why is it that uh, New York State lost the capacity to process apples for apple slices for school lunch? Um, what happened? Why, why, you know, whose idea was that <laughs> to send them to Washington I State? I think it was an unintended consequence of a, a strong lobbying effort to bring, you know, food. F- uh, it was the it was presented. Rail X was presented as a, as creating jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was built on a rail system. I mean, now and then it's transported by by truck from there to Hunts Point. Um, and once it's in place, these opportunities, these you know unintended consequences of a of an infrastructural system that's nationalized, transpire. Right. Um, 
It's very disturbing. It's um, very disturbing. One of the things that I noticed in uh, one of the maps in the study um, was you had sort of these these two maps, one which showed production and one which showed food deserts. Yeah. And I thought that represented a very interesting paradigm because yeah. what I saw was that in the most ag-heavy states yeah. were also the places where there were the biggest quote-unquote food deserts. Yeah. What happened? Yeah. What is that? Yeah, I mean, it is yeah, some of the... Some of the work that we do is to, to to visualize these ideas that people have. It's kind of you know, feelings that people kind of but have but can't express, and and that was a very interesting observation that we made uh, fairly early on in the process, which was uh, actually using USDA national data, uh, looking at county level production to over ten percent agricultural production by county, mm-hmm. and then correlating that with food desert counties in the United States. And there is a direct, rel- and I still, you know, it gives you goosebumps just sort of thinking and talking about it. States that are that are most have most active producers uh, of agricultural products uh, are also the counties. Those county levels are also the counties that are where many of our food deserts. Uh, many of them rural occur, and 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 the, what's actually happening there, if you look closely, is that the agriculture, that the the products that their crops that they're growing, are corn for feed, there for ethanol. Mm-hmm. It's really not the foods uh, that you would imagine some of the most fertile fertile soils in the world uh, being used for. So it really speaks to. Uh, not only what's grown on and national level policy, and, and it, it also correlates with with subsidies and where all those the federal uh, ag subsidies are going. Uh, so it really it points to not only problems with with those policies, but it also points to problems with you know getting foods to people that are in in those counties. So it again points to the, to the need for rethinking our regionalized infrastructural systems. Got it. Well, we're going to take a short, a 30-second break for a sponsor drop, and we'll come right back with Michael Conard of the Urban Design Lab. Great. you by Fairway Market. Whether you are cooking for one or for a crowd, Fairway Market literally has everything you need for a fantastic meal. But if you don't feel like cooking, no worries, they cater. Check out fairwaymarket.com for more information and be sure to check the new blog on our plate for weekly specials, health tips, and recipes. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and in the studio with me today is Michael Conard, uh, one of the principals in the Urban Design Lab at Columbia University and an author of a very interesting study about food systems in the United States. So, Michael, um, one of the things that I... Another another fascinating aspect of your study, which I've read um, assiduously, um, you have a diagrammatic comparison of price factors for processed versus whole foods, mm-hmm. and I learned that the cost of a typical fast food meal came to 0.04 cents per calorie with 0.18 cents as the farm share. Am I reading this accurately? That's right. And then in the whole food uh, comparison, which was a carrot, um, 
versus like a Happy Meal, the cost per calorie was 0.06 cents with only 0.05 cents going to the farm share. So how can Whole Foods ever compete with fast foods when that's the mathematical model behind their production? Yeah, no, and and that this was a another example of visualizing sort of complex data and complex relationships actually requested by one of the principals of the, uh, from United Health Foundation who really couldn't quite get his head really couldn't understand that that dilemma um, and it you know it really speaks to the value chain for processed foods supply chain versus whole foods right you the processed food uh, is is the production piece is, is highly mechanized. There are huge federal subsidies. The processing is highly consolidated. The transportation costs are low, with low spoilage for processed foods. The retail offers reliability, standardization, and low product cost. And the product uh, has enormous value added and high, high profits. It's the kind of, you know, it's, it's perfect for, for, <laughs> for many people. And no wonder it's so successful. And it's so successful. And... and now, and many of our foods, the foods that we eat, are prepared, uh, created, formulated for that process to be transported, to be on a show. I mean, we, all, this is all things that we know very well. Whole foods, on the other hand, have the, the great challenges of being defined by, you know, by small and medium scale dispersed farms with high labor, higher labor costs. Transportation costs are typically higher due to perishability and out of season produce is often transported long distances by air. Uh, in retail, the product has variability and perishability with high storage cost. Purchasing requires preparation, time, and knowledge. And the product is really no value added or low profit margins. So there is duplication of transportation. There's enormous inefficiencies in, in that system. But there's also an enor- enormous sort of secondary cost that aren't associated with the other system. And I think, you know, as those costs become more apparent, more introduced into that system, the, the, the playing field will change a little bit. Additionally, as the infrastructural system changes, as we are working and others work, continue to work toward a more regionalized system where there is the opportunity for, uh, for creating local community, for people actually having, you know, living wages, uh, for moving from a, a federal system where it's more based on finance and, and insurance or in, in real estate to one where actually, as the State of the Union message that the president gave, which actually people in America begin making, and I would add growing things again and creating products, the, the, the value, the opportunity for people to make the healthy choices they know they need to make will be more apparent and more, more placed at the same level as this other system. I think that's, um, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm on your team with this, but I, to play devil's advocate for a second yeah. here, I'm going to say, like, I think that's a very pie-in-the-sky assumption that people are ever going to make healthy choices for themselves, that people who are accustomed to eating processed foods or fast foods are ever going to change. Moreover, uh, I have to question whether in you know today's economy, when both parents need to be out of the house earning mm-hmm. a living, when and where are they ever going to start cooking? I mean, as you point out, 
you have to actually do the preparation. I mean, you can't just, um, you know, put it in the microwave or throw it in the oven for 15 minutes and have a meal on the table. That's right. And much as I advocate for for home cooking and and myself an avid cook, um, I think it's really unrealistic without some sort of, uh, you know, giant transformation on the part of the school system, on the part of... Uh, community leaders to make people more interested in a preserving their health and b learning how to actually cook. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a huge stumbling block. Yeah, no, and I right. don't, I don't, I didn't see that addressed in the study at all. Right. And um, and to me, if somebody is like intimidated or scared by the idea of cooking or simply doesn't have the time, much less the expertise, how do you get past that? How do you get past that issue? Yeah. Do you simply make processed foods a better quality product? I mean, we could jump to that point here, which is like, you know, okay, given that nobody's going to learn how to cook, what do we do next? Do we make everybody be a Chipotle? Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, because they seem to be working out a model that's that's pretty damn good. No, Steve Steve Ells does a good job. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really a good job. Um, I also wanted to say that, uh, to, to go backwards a little bit, when you were talking about these large, uh, you know, United, what was it, United Healthcare? United Health Foundation. Right? Excuse me, United Health Foundation. Um Michael Pollan published a really interesting editorial a couple of years ago, I think it was, at Link, this point. Linking food to health. Yes, that was, and that, the, that get was the insurance us. industry involved. That, and, was, that was after a And suddenly we'll be seeing yeah. big... My, oh, oh, really? Yeah, that came from our discussion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we were out in Berkeley you. talking about it. That did, is so he interesting. He was writing that article at the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, when are the uh, insurance yeah. companies going to wake up and see? I mean, you guys point out in your study the enormous costs yeah. that obesity is taking on this country. I forget. I think I even wrote it down, but yeah. maybe I didn't... Um, It'll be over six hundred and eighty-eight billion. You know, whatever. It was just extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, it'll, stunning. It'll exceed fifty-one percent of our GDP by. I mean, a project, a, a conservative projections by twenty eighty. Uh, the chronic disease will have huge consequences. You know, we were at a conference about a month or two ago. The Department of Defense gets it. They know that they are not going to have people to to do the job that they want them to be able to do. You mean in the armed forces? In the armed forces, the security. The insurance, the big, I mean, as I had said, when we've gone around and speak, the the larger people are getting, venture capital is getting, Wall Street is starting to get it. Now, where the models that they pursue are going to, you know, need to be, you know, challenged or kind of, you know, discussed. Uh, But I think it it requires all of us to to understand what needs to be done. Hmm. So what's the first step uh, in creating more regionalized food hubs? What's, you know, how are you guys going to start, um, you know, moving forward yeah. with some of the findings that you made here? And, and we already are. I mean, you know, people are, are calling us. People are understanding that, they, that, that that's an important opportunity uh, to create jobs, to create brands for uh, growers and farmers in various areas. Uh, we're on a, several other studies to be able to to verify and provide metrics and proof of this as a viable alternative. That'll actually provide more opportunities for funding and change federal policy. Um, there's, again, venture capital going into thinking about how to do this in an effective and smart way. We know that this is it, its infancy, and so we've got to do it right, mm-hmm. uh, that failures are, are difficult to overcome. We know that at the state level, Governor Cuomo has advocated the creation of regional, a rational system for creating regional food hubs to, to you know, increase the productivity and the, um, 
the, the viability of, of, of New York State agriculture and, and the states working on that, and we're you know helping them when we you know when we can and as we're asked. Uh, so that's that's happening. It's it is happening now. It's. And what what do you think the? Um, oh, I know one I, one thing I wanted to ask you. You mentioned the. Um, Community-based approaches in Hardwick, Vermont, and in Somerville, Massachusetts, um, and they have shown success in the short term. Um, And then you go on to say, however, to remain competitive, regional food infrastructure improvements will be required to sustain them. Can you describe what it is that they've done in those communities that have been successful and, and how you measured that success? Yeah. I mean, and we haven't really measured either, but but Hartwick, we know, has been using food as a way of creating community and bringing uh, food kitchen, food production, uh, sort of providing the critical densities of, of like-minded and like uh, you know, uh, production and, and processing people together uh, to create that critical mass. Somerville is interesting. Somerville was a um, Chris Economo study that was done out of Tufts uh, which was a comprehensive kind of like a, a Canada study of uh, Canada's work in, in Harlem, Harlem mm-hmm. uh, which was a comprehensive in the schools, um, in you know local sh- uh, grocery shops and, and, and markets. Uh, that it was a community-based effort. Now, this is great and it's important. And there was actually outcomes, positive outcomes, in the reduction of obesity rates in the school children based upon Chris's work, Dr. Economos's work. Um, to sustain those efforts in in the context of a, a system that doesn't support that um, it, it needs it needs other people doing it, it next needs door money. it needs money it <laughs> needs state effort it needs a change and it needs the kind of um, biz, new business models in part that will create investment that will create Jobs that'll create those opportunities for people who know that they what they need to buy but can't afford it and don't have the time to do it. Yeah, well, that I mean, to me again, that's like sort of the main thing yeah, is how do you critical. get how do you wean people off of fast food and back into the kitchen? I, you know, I just I don't have the answer for that, and yeah. I don't know if anybody else does yeah. either. Yeah. Um, you say the access to accurate, substantiated data and metrics creates a more informed discussion around the costs and benefits of various alternatives. So who? Who are looking? You know, who's looking at your study? Who's reading this? I mean, aside from people like United Health Foundation, yeah. is Walmart looking at it? Is McDonald's looking at it? Wal- I mean, Walmart. We've we've been Bentonville three years ago. Walmart is, was looking at it. We've uh, obviously venture capital. Wall Street is looking at it. Mm-hmm. Federal government. We've been in you know several in the White House and been on the Hill. Um, and people at the state level are looking at it. And, and you know, USDA is, has uh, supported a, a large, called an AFRI grant, we're one of the multi-sites, to really look at regional food and the opportunities to bring that into communities that are most in need. So uh, the, the proof is being generated. Are you going to, is your group attending the um, USDA Agricultural Conference in uh, February? You know, they have that big ag conference every yeah, year. Yeah, we're not going to that, but you have a lot of the other people that are part of that, um, you know, our study from Penn and Tufts and Hopkins are, are going to that. Are they? The because I went a couple of years ago, and i got to tell you, I mean, I didn't see, and it was supposedly um, 
you know, Kathleen Merrigan gave the keynote speech and, and it was all about sustainability and blah, blah, blah. And I cannot tell you how much resistance and pushback there was from the industry leaders who were there. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are people who grow corn, who grow cattle, mm-hmm. you know, all of the commodity crops. I mean, they were just, uh, there was a guy from Whole Foods, I forget, you know, which one of the principals in Whole Foods mm-hmm. was one of the keynote speakers as well. And afterwards, I could hear the buzz of all these people saying, well, that guy's a crook. I mean, they literally called him a crook, that he was putting one over on the American population, and, you know, this was all a flash in the pan, and it wasn't going to last, and what, you know, did he understand how much money it was going to take to create the model that he was talking about, et cetera, et cetera. It was very interesting to me, because I didn't feel that, you know, the basic industry was at all behind this, or saw any benefit, and this was despite pretty high gas prices at the time and a yeah. lot of um, a lot of changes in the broadline distribution business you know in yeah. terms of like shortening their chain and yeah. and doing sort of multiple pickups and multiple drops offs at the same time it's all that kind of stuff I mean what we've found is that and we've talked to with our partnership we've had access to, to major boardrooms nationally and um, people at that level get it and whether they can change those that can change are considering how those that can't are going are vulnerable and new businesses are emerging the chip you know the chipotles the healthy fast foods the alternatives in terms of production and distribution the impacts for the health and, and you know wellness industry and other institutions that have responsible for the health care of their of their uh, constituents and, and their employees they get it, and it's um, it's happening. There's help, some help at a federal level, um, but as in any any change like this, um, there's also resistance to change by, in part, those who are in, a, in part of a system that can't. Yeah, I I wish we had more time, Michael. I'm just going to ask you one more question, which is sort of huge, but um, (laughs) I know you have been working all around the world. You were saying before we started the show that you had been in Brazil and Ghana recently and so forth. So when you talk about um, re-regionalization in the United States, we don't operate in a vacuum as far as food production goes, and a lot of our food is exported. And so... How do these other uh, how do these other countries tie into this? Um, and as you pointed out, they're they're eager to make many of the same mistakes we've already made, <laughs> dying to replicate the obesity model. I mean, it's That's just right. so popular. No, it's true. Um, so how how is that? I mean, are you working with other governments? Uh, you know, we last year as part of a studio that the director and I teach in, in, the, in the School of Architecture were in. Uh, China and and Ghana. Actually, we were just returned from Brazil and are going to Ghana again next week with Millennium Cities Initiatives and the Earth Institute. Uh, and f- people are thinking about food systems now. Uh, say African countries, maybe a little bit more so. Brazil, maybe not necessarily. And China, from the point of view that that we're thinking about it, um, they are, as you said. Be- in working toward industrialization uh, of their systems. Uh, tractors are very obviously important, urbanizing their populations. Uh, when I spoke in front of the, the party in China about regionalization, um, there were those that really, you know, were, were very critical of it. Um, but with escalating it, obesity rates, uh, with the move to economies that are working now but may not work as well in the future. 
people are starting to think about it and get it. Um, it's kind of what you know what we're imagining and what we're, what we're presenting is a, uh, a system that is also empowering, re-empowering those communities, um, re-establishing the infrastructures and the systems and the traditions that many of them have had for millennia uh, that they've lost because of a competitive and supported system that um, you know suggests something else. Mm-hmm. I I was just <laughs> musing on the on the idea of of you know it must be easier to get countries that are only just beginning to enter that industrialized processed food model uh, to turn their clocks back. Um, but for instance, you know I'm thinking yeah, I think that, what I don't know about that. <laughs> really, they're like forging ahead. They well, want to. I think you know Brazil, China. They're all, they're yeah. very interested in, in moving forward, hmm. moving and toward what, that. And what what about water usage? Model. I mean, are they water's huge? Are they water's concerned huge. about? And we only have a couple minutes left, but um, I I actually had uh, Alex Prudhomme who wrote a book called The Ripple Effect on yeah. recently. I don't yeah. know if you have seen no. that book, um, but it was all about water usage in the 21st century and you know the, the the lack thereof and the impact of climate change and yeah. and i'm just i'm curious that you know countries that are moving towards this industrial scale model aren't they taking into account the fact that water is going to be an increasingly uh, in short supply yeah uh it's there it hasn't happened for some of them yet so i don't think it's it's on the top of the pile. I mean, I would have thought in sub-Saharan African countries, it would well, Africa, be the number one issue. Africa, it actually more. I, mean, I was thinking Brazil or China, yeah. But Africa, it's huge, and right. the, the systems that they're, you know, sort of some of the systems they're, they're being suggested to move toward is, is are difficult to, to do that. So, huh. yeah. Very interesting. Well, Michael, we have to wrap it up here. Um, I want to thank you very much for coming down oh, to Roberta's. You. I hope you'll come back. This has been a really <laughs> interesting discussion. It's great to have somebody who's got so many sort of fingers in so many pies and, mm-hmm. and really sees a global, a more global um, picture than many of the rest of us. Um, next week, folks, I have Timothy Pacharat and his wonderful new book, Every 12 Seconds, which is all about uh, the slaughtering industry and in, in cattle's. Great. I didn't say that very well, but the slaughterhouse, he spent six months in a slaughterhouse observing behind the scenes, and he's written a book about it. It's called Every 12 Seconds. Timothy Patrat next week on Straight Note Chaser. Thanks so much to my sponsor, Fairway. I love you to death, and thank you, Jack, for your hospitality. <laughs> See you next week, folks. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.